You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Gaonic literature, and I want to discuss something that is really in my mind because of my own personal experience. And that is that I've just come back from Eretz Yisrael and been in areas that have a tremendous historical significance, I think, for all Jews. And I I think part of what we sort of need to uh, understand is why this Eretz Yisrael, which plays such a large role in our lives, which continues to, we continue to marvel at the places in Eretz Yisrael and their history and their significance, in terms of how the Gaonim saw Eretz Yisrael and the community that was there and the rabbis that were there, the teachers that were there, the Gaonim who were in Babylon and eventually uh, in the city of Baghdad, they saw the Eretz Yisrael community as deficient. They didn't deny that Eretz Yisrael was holy and that it was a place that it was worthwhile. In fact, many of the Gonim took pilgrimages to Israel. But it was clear from their directives, from their attitudes, that they were not going to cede any power to the yeshivos in Israel. And what do I mean yeshivos in Israel? Obviously, whenever you struggle um, to make ends meet, you're going to try your best to study Torah and to teach Torah. Well, that was part of the problem. Um, In Eretz Yisrael, it became increasingly more difficult to have places that were just dedicated to pure Torah study. The amount of time they could find to study Torah was restricted. The persecutions that they had to endure during the period of the Gaonim was immense. Whereas in what was happening in Baghdad in that period, in the period from around 640 till about 1090, which is about the period of the Gaonim, we're talking here approximately um, approximately talking about 450 years is the period of the Gaonim from the earliest to the latest. During much of that period, life in Baghdad, although it had its uh, tribulations and political uh, you know, minefields, and oftentimes there was persecution, it was nothing compared to what life was like in Eretz Yisrael. Even before the year 640, the year that basically where Islam comes to the rise of Islam, there is already a schism between Bovil and Eretz Yisrael. Now, it doesn't mean that, and we see it, of course, uh, consistently in the Yerushalmi, that, and even in what mentions in the Bavli, that the rabbis of Israel, 
before the period of the Godim started, the period of the Amaroya, that they um, were very um, negative towards the people uh, who weren't in Bavel. Um, they, there's a number of statements that are retained in the Bavli. It's because you come from a dark land that you say things that are dark and unclear. It's because, oh, you're because you're these Babylonians. I don't want to, I don't want to take your hand. Babylonians, oh, you're used to doing such pilpul that you will put an elephant in the eye of a needle. You can try to say anything, even though it doesn't make sense. So we have consistently, we hear records of the dismissiveness uh, towards the Babylonian way of learning that we know is the bulwark of Talmud Bavli. The great Amora Rebzeira um, wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael and Rabbi Yehuda didn't want him to. Rabbi Yehuda felt that going to Eretz Yisrael at this period would be contrary to Torah law because there's more Torah in Babel, he felt. Despite the fact that there was Rabbi Yochanan, there was Rish Lakish, there were other great men in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Yehuda felt, Rabbi Yehuda, the student of Rav and Shmuel, felt that the Torah crown belonged to Bavel. And therefore, Abzera was committing an Avera by leaving. He didn't deny, Rabbi Yehuda didn't deny the fact that there was Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael. He didn't deny that there are mitzvahs you could fulfill there. But we know Talmud Torah can get Kula. And the type of Talmud Torah learning and proficiency he would get was greater in Bavel than it was in Eretz Yisrael. Now, Reb Zera, nothing stopped him. And Reb Zera is the most, one of the most prominent names in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And we know, even in the Bavli, it says that Reb Zera fasted a hundred fasts when he came to Eretz Yisrael to forget the way he had thought in the time as a Babylonian. Um, what's my point here? that there was already a friction between the Bavli and the Yerushalmi, so to speak, between the between the Rabbonim in Bavel and the Rabbonim in Eretz Yisrael. Of course, whenever we heard what Rabbi Yochanan said, we can spend pages in the Talmud Bavli explaining it, even though he clearly was not a Babylonian. He was a total Eretz Yisrael. He was one of the, he, he typifies the Amor of Eretz Yisrael more than anyone else. And we could spend pages in the Talmud Bavli trying to explain Rabbi So I don't want to make it seem like it's them against us. I don't want it to seem like it's the Red Sox against the Yankees. It's nothing like that at all. However, there is clearly a sense that the Derech Halimud was different. It's clear, there's clearly a sense that, and you see this from Rabbi Yehuda, that even though Eretz Yisrael might still have its glory, but it's, um, it's going to stop. And Rav Shiragon, who was, of course, from Babel, tells us that the yeshivas sort of uh, were, uh, were, were threatened and were actually uh, brought to a halt much of the, uh, much of the creative activity of those yeshivas was brought to a halt. Now, part of it, and most of it was really based on the fact that there was Christian persecution, the persecution of the Romans, and then later the Christians. But the Romans, then later the Christians who took their place, were extremely uh, vicious and terrible towards life in Israel. And as we know, Yerushalayim 
which was always the seat of all our prayers and all our tears. Yerushalayim is a, was, became uh, a, a Roman city. Uh, there was a, the area of the base of Mikdash, of course, the mission already tells us was, um, was already plowed over. Alia Capitolina. Alia Capitolina, right, right. That's, that's, thank you, Dr. Cohen. That's what that area was. It was no longer going to be Yerushalayim. And really new Torah centers began to develop. And part of it was because they knew how important Yerushalayim was. Um, and therefore new Torah centers started to develop outside of Yerushalayim. Um, that's why, by the way, the name Talmud Yerushalmi is a misnomer. <laughs> it wasn't done in Yerushalayim at all, Yerushalayim at all. Um, true, Shammai, who was mentioned, we talked about today, was in Yerushalayim. But the, the, the format of the Gemara of the Yerushalmi, not the Mishnayis, that was done perhaps in the three other cities that, that, that were, Torah was able to, to rise there. Tveria was one of the cities on the Kinneret, and actually Aza as well, uh, which, you know, whether it's here to throw or not, the Gaza, the Aza area, right? And there was another area in the south that also uh, in the southern part of the country, it was also allowed there to be some sort of uh, Jewish uh, Torah centers there. But essentially, um, you know, and, and, and again, it, it really, you know, Rav Simcha Saf points out that in the Yerushalmi and Demai, there's a machlokas Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Lazar, if, if Eretz Yisrael is mostly Goyim or mostly Jews. And that shows you that, that the, the Romans and other nations began populating those areas that were ours. And, and they were pushing us out. Now, you know, if you think about um, post the Talmudic era, for sure, if, you, if you're talking about post the Talmudic era, for sure, um, what you have then is a strengthening of what, what's event, which becomes the Roman or the, the Byzantine Empire, which is sort of what happens um, when the Christians sort of like somehow uh, arise to power. Um, and and, and, and there, they hate, they hate us. And they will not allow any Jews to live in, uh, in, in Yerushalayim. And it's from that period, from the Byzantine period, that we know of all the horrible gzerot, of which is all what we call the 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 piyutim, the yotros, the zulos, all these these extended uh, poetic parts of the tefillah that we know that were written by Yosi, uh, by Yosi, Menachem, uh, by 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 the Kalir. Those that that world of piyut, of piyut, of 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 poetic. Uh, statements that are really laced with the medrashim and that we insert into the tefillah, that is a byproduct of the persecution that the Byzantine Empire laid onto whatever was happening in Eretz Yisrael. They weren't able to study. They weren't able to have a Shabbos where they could, the rabbi could give a drasha and go through the medrashim. Um, just it, they, whether it was through informants or whatever sort of iron hand they had, they weren't able. So what they were allowed to do was to sing. They were allowed to pray. Um, 
so they they were allowed to insert this as part of their prayers, but they weren't allowed to have studies. They weren't allowed to, learning Torah in this level, whether it was on Shabbos only or not, I'm not sure, but there was a strict restrictions on studying Torah. That did not happen in both. Whatever, with the rise of Islam, whatever the rules of being the dimi, of, of being under, you know, of having to bow to the, 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 the Muslim authorities, they, there was not the restrictions of studying Torah. They never tried to stop that. In fact, it got to a point, as we know, that they weren't able to even um, say Kriya Shema, right? There was Gezeris again saying Kriya Shema, which is, of course, why we have the Kriya Shema as part of Musaf, as you all know, right? It's there because uh, there was a time in the, as, as, as the Byzantine Empire uh, in Eretz Yisrael flexed its muscles, what it tried to do was stop the saying of regular Shema. So somehow they were able to come back later in the day and sort of put together a prayer that, that they sort of were able to insert Kriya Shema in and say, oh, and, and we're going to say Shema. But that was like a way to fool the authorities. So the Musif Kriya Shema is a remnant, as you know, most, most of you know about this, is a remnant of the period when we had those Xeris. And of course, there was a whole discussion by the Gaonim and Bava whether we should sleep, keep on doing that. In other words, the Gaonim Bava were against um, saying Shema again as part of the Musaf Kedusha because the only reason it got put in there was because the B'nai Eretz Yisrael suffering like they were uh, needed to somehow have learning Torah happening. And again, which was an interruption of the davening right? The piyutim that were said every Shabbos that somehow generated uh, the ideas of the Parsha and everything like that, the Midrashim, which they weren't allowed to say, become part of dominating. And they become, uh, they become sort of like um, uh, attached uh, crudely, according to the Gonim's way of looking things at the dominating. And therefore, okay, while there was Xerath, you couldn't learn Taira, I understand, but we shouldn't accept these piyutim in Europe and in other places where there is no gzair against learning Torah, and there's no reason to have them. They, obviously, if you look back at it and you say, well, isn't it tremendous what they were able to produce? It's like the Jews were had, had the, uh, the boot on their neck, and they were able to produce these brilliant, incredible uh, poetry and ideas that are, that are so are wonderful to look at. Okay, but but having them as part of davening might be a problem. Take the parsha and take ideas, and you can see that from because we have remnants of these piyutim of these, and they mostly were Eretz Yisrael writers, who, um, you know, again, they, there was some influence by, you know, by Arabic meter, but it was not done by the Chachmei Bavel. It was done by the Chachmei Eretz Yisrael. And they were the what the Kalir and others, they were machabri of these piyutim. Why were they machabri these piyutim? Why did they why did they make every davening longer and, and, and tell the story of whatever it was, whether it was of the Yantif or of the Torah reading that was they were going to read? It was because normal medrash teaching, normal Shabbos afternoon shiurim, all that stuff was outlawed. So what they did was they dressed it up as prayers. 
And therefore, you know, the Romans, the Byzantines, or whatever, the early Christians, they they didn't cop what was going on. They didn't realize that these that these uh, you know very um, uh, elaborate and poetic like prayers were not part of your prayers. So basically, what was happening was Eretz Yisrael, they had they, they not only paid lip service to Eretz Yisrael to go on him, but they, um, they 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 cried and they were upset and they 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 agonized at what was going on. But they had to call a spade a spade, and that was this is a tragedy that 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 wonderful people are there, but they are not able to really retain the high level of learning and study and understanding that they had the schools to be able to be like. Um, so, so were the were the Putim made in Babel and sent to Eretz Yisrael? No, the Putim were they were they were developed in Eretz Yisrael. They were developed by Eretz Yisrael rabbis in order and, 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 and spread as, as options for prayer because they were, they were inserted in places throughout the, what was Eretz Yisrael where learning Torah and giving shiurim where also I would get up in the Shabbos afternoon and open, whether he'd have the book in front of him or not and have an audience and he would go through and, and go through the psukim and say, here's a question. How are we going to answer it? Let's connect it to this, just like we find in the Shiltos or in the earlier Midrashim, where you have the Psikta, the Ravkana, and other places where you start with a Pusik in Mishle or something else, or you start with a Pusik from Nevi'im, and then you work back to either the subject of the day of the Parsha, and you have a question and you develop it. The Medrash Yilamdenu. Uh, we, we, we have records of how Midrashim work. We, a, a rabbi gets up there, he's, he's Doresh. He tries to, he has a question, he's trying to search something out, which might be an excuse to really deal with a whole number of issues. But so, was, so the difference, the difference in, for, to an observer is if the rabbi gets up and just speaks by himself, they will consider that not to be prayer. Whereas if somebody gets up and reads from something else during the middle of the davening, which is the Haftorah, then that won't be a problem. I'm, or the Piyutim, Bob. The Piyutim, trying to understand. The Piyutim were, get out a Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur Machser or Shemini Atzeros or Sukkot Machser, and you'll see that throughout the Tefillah, you have references to how what the Luav and the, and the Esrog is about, references to what Kapara and Yom Kippur, what, what the first day of Sukkot is about, this was done every Shabbos, every single week, as part of, instead of the normal Hameir Laaretz, there would be an additional stuff. After Shema, there would be stuff in, which was called the Zulas. There would be, davening would take, would be double or triple the length, but it wouldn't be done by a leader of a teacher phrasing a question and a guy raising his hand and back and forth and give and take and people listening raptly. It was basically by the Chazan and anybody else who had a copy of it, just reading the ideas. It wasn't necessarily done in what was called the teaching method, which is what I'm trying, what I'm, I'm doing, not doing such a great job tonight, but normally, you know, I'll raise a question, we'll have some answers, we'll go back and forth, uh, we'll open up an idea, we'll show a connection from one thing. With the Piyutim, it was pretty much, um, the idea was already, it, it lacked the spontaneity. It was. It didn't have the spontaneity and power 
of the regular drushas. Uh, the drushas could really be, even if the same ones were said every week or every year, they could still be done in a way, like the Haggadah, in a way that it's a give and take, an answer, a question, a shear, that it has the power of Limerat Torah. Instead, they would, the canned answers that were already part of the Midrashic mindset were, were refashioned into poetic statements that in some way aligned with the parts of prayer that they were attached to. So in this way, you would actually, through your davening, also get a new understanding uh, by understanding the Piyutim. But it was a way of uh, in keeping the learning of Torah. That's what it was about. And this, the same thing is true about the Kriyat Shema of Musaf. All of that, the Gaonim applauded, but they realized that it was all Shasatrak. It's like when we hear stories, and Dr. Kogan appreciated, about all the Russian Jews in that dark period that were able to somehow do something, or Havdil in the concentration camps, that they were able to at least have one, they didn't have a Sefer Torah, but they had one piece of paper that they had from an old sitter that they read around on Simchas Torah and danced with. It's heartwarming. It's, 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 it's wonderful to hear about. It's incredible that the Jewish spirit is so powerful. But at the end of the day, who is, where is the place that is producing solid learning and thinking that's going to be Bava? And, and therefore, when, when issues came up of, well, first of all, one of the main issues was, how do we paskin in a, in a question if there's a machlokas, the Bavli, and the Yershalmi? So we have from the later uh, Gonim statements as if <laughs> that there's no question, the Bavli is a finished work, and that the Yerushalmi is not. Now, did all the Gaonim believe that? I don't know. Some of the Gaonim definitely did, and they felt that, and that is one of the reasons why the Yerushalmi, although to many people is is in a way less uh, labyrinth-like, and maybe is more to the point. But it also has, as I've pointed out often in, in, in many other forums, it's also a place where questions remain, where things are unsolved. And where there was, for example, uh, a machlokas, the Bavli Nishan, about what to do in halacha, the Gaonim clearly said the Bavli is supreme. In fact, what they sometimes say is, well, if you want to use the Yerushalmi, to help explain the text of the Bible that we have, that would be fine. But where it's, there's a debate, you definitely would go with the Bible over the Yerushalmi. Now that is the Gaonic approach. And again, part of it is the fact that they felt that, that the Yerushalmi was itself not the Yerushalmi, had to close shop because of persecution. And that persecution uh, caused the work to be unfinished. And therefore, the Chachamim and Bovel accepted the refugees who were able to escape. And therefore, the real finished product is the Bavli. That was the idea. There was one argument that said, well, you have the, you have the Bavli, where you have Talmud HaChachamim that are sitting in a, a place where they have a, a lot 
less persecution, where they're able to learn and study and among themselves develop a point to its greatest extent. And then you have the Chachamim and Eretz Yisrael who are trying their best, but clearly are stymied. Let's go with that. The other as argument was said that the Yerushalmi is unfinished and the, the, the people who are the catalysts of the Yerushalmi, although there's, I don't know how much historical record of this is true, those people who were involved in writing Yerushalmi and putting that energy together ended up going to Bavel and becoming part of the great Talmud Bavli, uh, uh, Talmud Bavli project. So therefore, you should really see the Yerushalmi as a proto-version of what ends up being the Bavli, where you anyway have, it's not just there's one man called Ravashi, but including many Eretz Yisrael refugees who came from the, the Eretz Yisrael yeshivas to Bavel to finish the directives of Torah. Bavel was the source of better and, and, and more the Torah, the way it should be functioned. Now, I, I didn't say before that uh, what eventually happened in Bavel was that the Rosh Hashivos and the Reish Galusas and many of the were able to just learn. They were funded by uh, throughout the whole Jewish world, allowing them to keep the yeshivas going. And they saw on themselves a responsibility the Goman did to be the Torah authorities for all the communities that were growing in North Africa, all the way through Spain, of course, uh, in Afghanistan, and, and, and to, their, to their east, uh, to their east and north and, and, and to their south, in those areas that we, Kurdistan, all these places that we have very little records of, the Chachmei Bavel felt that they were the arbiters and the authorities to be able to not only accept money to keep their yeshivas going, but the responsibility to send students to those places to be the teachers of the Babylonian method. Now, the uh, <laughs> now one of the uh, in interesting things that Rav Simcha Asaf and others have pointed out is that it seems that the B'nai Eretz Yisrael were not going to go so silently into the night. They still had their own um, sense of what their Torah meant, despite the fact that they had smaller numbers and not the same amount of support. Asaf has noted, Simcha Asaf has noted that uh, there is a similarity between the Italian approach and what was called the Yerushalmi of Eretz Yisrael approach. So it seems like, although the Babylonians were the ones that the Israelis, the Israel people appealed to, that, and, and they needed their help, but they didn't just consider themselves, you know, lapdogs. They also sent chuvos. They also sent responsa, especially to Italy, that eventually made it to uh, France and Germany. So many have shown a straight line between 
uh, the Israeli halacha, so to speak, the Palestinian halacha is sometimes called by the scholars, and Italian, and then later uh, Upper France and Germany. In other words, Ashkenaz, the Ashkenaz hanhogos and approaches are closer to the Mesorah of Eretz Yisrael than they are to Bovel. Bovel goes to North Africa and in, towards Spain. Whereas from Eretz Yisrael, somehow, despite everything that was going on, their teachers were able to be influential into Italy. And from Italy, they were able to spread into the northern parts of Europe to those communities. Now, Caliphate. Um, and it was uh, Mu'avia. Uh, Mu'avia was, I think, the uh, Mu'ayawa, I think, was the Caliph. He was Muhammad's uh, brother-in-law. He was a, he was a, a half-brother to one of Muhammad's wives. So he was the second of the caliph, uh, of the second caliphate. And he uh, came to power in the year 660. And when he came to power, his seat, he moved the seat of Islamic control from Medina to Damascus, which meant and here's the point that you know the 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 the, the Christian Romans were driven out. The Muslims had control for a while, and when the Rome when the Muslims had control, the first 20, 30 years it was sort of a it was a good period. The Jews were able to go back to Jerusalem. They were able to go back. They were able to study. Uh, he was pretty much an enlightened type of king type of caliph, and the fact that uh, he made the seat of the Islamic empire Damascus in Syria meant that Israel, that cities in Israel became more important. That was when a very important Arabic city, a Muslim city, still important today, called Ramla, was developed approximately the year 715. And that was a, a city that that again, was, was, was buttressed by is, Islamic power. The Islamic uh, uh, people, uh, again, the, it, this is, gets into this whole story of, of, of who controls Yerushalayim, but it's, it's from that period of the Amiyans, uh, of, 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 of the Umayyads, uh, of the Umayyad empire, that we have Islamic uh, desire to control Yerushalayim, etc. Now they control Yerushalayim, but they also let the Jews live there. They let the Jews study there. Um, it's true, some of the Jewish Bate uh, Knesset become, uh, you know, become uh, taken over and they become mosques, but there is definitely, it was a bet, much better period. Now, when the caliphate changes, and again, through all the different political machinations, and we now go to the Abbasid Empire. So the Abbasid Empire, the, 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 for uh, a number of years, the, the seat of power was Baghdad, which happened to be full of Jews and full of Surah and Pupadis and all those Jews. So the, the, the Jews in Israel, the Jews in Eretz Yisrael, uh, appealed to their brethren to help them with money, with with political um, 
uh, intercession with the caliph. And they did that. Now, a similar thing happens when the, when the empire, the Abbasid empire uh, goes to Karun, which is in North Africa, or when the seat of the empire is in Egypt. In all of those periods, the Jewish communities there become extremely important because they are now the ones that can bribe and can influence and, and can whisper into the ears of the Muslim leaders to make things better in Israel for them. So whether they liked it or not, they needed to kowtow to what was happening in Bovel, or then eventually that, as we know uh, later uh, with the rise of the Karaites, that the the, the Gaonim were extremely vulnerable on. And that was the the understanding of the Pshat and the Pasik, the Mikra. Uh, they were known, uh, the, the Karaites were able, Anan and his, and his sect were able to generate a very strong uh, canard, and maybe some of it was actually not a canard, that rabbinical Judaism did not really understand what the Pshat and the Pasik was, and that they were in a way obfuscating the truth. They, they, were, they were not into melding and having a true understanding of Ashkafa or understanding of what the Psukim mean. And of course, uh, this was why the Karaites became stronger and stronger because they could attract people uh, who wanted to know what the verses meant, not what were just the traditions that were mentioned in Talmud Bavli, where many of the uh, drushos were very, very far from the Pshat and the Pasik. And of course, eventually, the corrective to the Karite, um, you know, the Karite infection was the antidote was Rafsad Yagon, who was brought out of nowhere at the age of 36 out of Egypt to become the head of the Yeshiva. So Sadia tried to, in a way, correct things. But the Bnei Eretz Yisrael in Tveria worked on the Mesorah, they worked on the Psukim. And we know from, as, and anybody who ever reads the Sefer of the Tur, the Balaturim, knows that there's the Mesorah of Hashem, Be'ilone Mamre, Behu Yoshev, Pesach Oel Kachom Hayom. That is the first Pasuk in Parshas Bayer. Then it says, Vayisa Eino. So first I want to show you. Take a look. Kachom Hayom, Vayisa Eino. So if you take a look, you see there's a little star here. So that means the Mesorah had a tradition that there's no Vav, that the Vav is Chosr. Okay? Vayisa Einav, there's a little, little star here. The Mesorah tells us Beis the Samich. Hmm. Vayar Vihine Shlosha. So you see it says Shlosha here? So the Mesorah connects that 
take a look at here what I'm showing you on the board. Bays. Does the word shlosha appear as another place? Where does the word shlosha appear? It appears by the Sali Chori. Now you know where that is, right? By the Sarha Ophit. So Bali Mesora, when they learned Chumash, they made little marks and they connected brilliantly ideas to each other. The same word shlosha as you can see here with this little star, is connected to another place called the Shosha Sali Chori. What could be the... What, what could be the in other words, the three... One of the 13 principles? No, no, no. This is, this is, something, that's, this is something that they developed in their learning of Chumash. In other words, they went deep into every word and somehow they saw that there was a connection between the three angels and the three baskets that were on the head of the dream of the Sar Haofen. Okay? By Yosef. By Yosef, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, here you have another thing from the Mesorah. Okay? Um, the Mesorah made a point on the word Vayoratz, what Avram did, the Mesorah wrote the words Vailot, it says Vayokom. doesn't say that he ran, it says that he got up. Somehow the Bali Mesorah, again, are, when they study things, they just wrote these little letters, these little notes that became part of Chumash study, that to compare Avram to Lot. Lot runs to greet them, Lot, it says he stands up. All right? Um, that's one part of what... The, and this all came from the, the period, basically, of the 7th, 8th, and 9th century in Israel, in Tveria. That this, is, uh, this is work, my friends. This is work, trying to figure out what the Dalit meant, what the Bays meant, right? The base, solid, the, right? what's the connection between the three baskets and the three angels? Um, all these little numbers, these little tiny notes become part of a, of initiating a study of Chumash, which for many people is lost. The, the men like the Marami Rutenberg and his, uh, his, his student's son, the tour, made a, a sort of a, a, a sort of a literary, you know, it was, it was part of their literary career was to explain the Mesorah, to explain what these bases and Dalits and connections were. And many times m m we only know about it through the, the Sefer Balaturim, but it's built on what was done in Tveria where you had these, yes, they were not the Talmudists of, of the previous generations, but they might have been the deepest thinkers developing new areas of understanding in, in, in Tanakh. And that was the Bali Mesora of Tveria. Um, I'll end tonight with, with, with talking about Sadiagon. 
Um, there was a, a very big debate between Sadia and Ben Mayer before Sadia even becomes the Gaon. There was the, the Gaonim in Bavel sent out what they felt was the Hishin of the opinion of the scholarly works called the Palestinian opinion, the opinion of the Chachmeir Tisrael. And part of what he wrote was that they lost the Mesora as to how to count the years, that, that you would go with Chachmei Bavel over Chachmei Eretz Yisrael. And even though it was something that was really only relevant, most relevant to Chachmei Eretz Yisrael, it was about Shemitah. And, and whether Shemitah is the Rais or the Rabbanan, it's relevant in Eretz Yisrael, not in, in the Chutz Laretz. So this was something that, um, you know, it, it, again, was a place where, as I said, it seems like the Gaonim were dissing Marava, dissing Eretz Yisrael, um, indicating that, that even though they, they were trying to have some dignity and say, we know what, what's, what's right about for our land, we, we're the ones. In fact, part of what Ben Mayer said was, and the Rambam echoes this in the Sefer Mitzvos, was that, that the reason why there's Kiddush HaChodesh and everything is only because of what happens in Israel. And it's, it's only we in the B'nai Yitzhak, we, we know. We know when the Rosh Chodesh is. We know when the Yom Tovim are. Uh, we know how to determine uh, what the years are and, and when it should start. And the debate between Ben Mayer and Sadia was not only about Shemitah, it was also about figuring out, I believe also when Rosh Hashanah was. So this was something, you know, the Machlok is Ben Mayer and Sadia about when Rosh Hashanah was, and when, how to determine the calendar dates. This was something that if we listen to the B'nai Eretz Yisrael, things would be very different. It wasn't just, you know, hanging on for, for the largesse of the Muslims, but as the Christians came over and, and through the Crusades and basically destroyed so much of Jewish life in Israel and, 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 and killing the Jews and destroying uh, any remnant of of their shoals, um, you know, that really put an end completely you know, to that, that little ember of, of, of glory that was what we call the Gaonic sort of version of what was happening in Eretz Yisrael. And as I said, it is a, uh, it's not a, a happy story, but the dynamics behind it, I think, are very crucial. I think it's very important, especially since the world that we have today, is, is, whether it's the Piyutim or other things, are really a part of this, uh, of this historical, um, I guess, furnace that, that, that produced uh, the, what could be a lasting edifice, but I think really needs to be, to be understood um, in, 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 a very, in a much more complete way. Then the way we have it, we have it now is just little pieces of things. I should also, I should also just, I just should also just end here and say that that much of this period has yet still to be understood, and part of it is is, is based on discoveries that are made from the Geniza and other things that sort of you know allow the story of the of the underdog to be told perhaps a little clearer than it has been up until this point. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.